talking about today is psychotherapeutic services for, well, you know this, because this is the title for older adults. So um, there are a lot of treatments for people with psychotic disorders. Um, medication is often prescribed. Case management is usually critical. Skills building is usually important. Um, there are a lot of uh, day programs, psychiatric hospitals, a lot of different mental health treatments for older adults with psychotic disorders, but I am specifically gonna be focusing on psychotherapeutic services. I have a strong sense that psychotherapeutic services for people with delusional and schizophrenic disorders is under, under provided. And I, you'll see that I have kind of some strong, strong views on this, but I think um, working in the mental health field we should at least be familiar with the idea of providing actual psychotherapy for older adults. Whether you're a therapist yourself or a case manager or a peer support, um, I think some of these techniques will be relevant to, to the relationship that we have with people with psychotic disorders. Um, I work at, as I've mentioned the last couple of weeks, I work at Heritage Clinic. I've been with Heritage Clinic 29 years. I've worked with a lot of, well, and Heritage Clinic serves primarily older adults. And over the years, we have served more and more and more people with psychotic disorders. So this is a subject that I've worked quite a bit with and want to share my experience with you and, and some of the literature. So, um, and so that, that's a little bit about me. I think probably from looking at your names and we have quite a few people been with us that our audience, our participants are, you're a mix of social workers, MFTs, psychologists, case managers, peer support, people in administration and so on. So, I'm going to go over a little background just to clarify. I, I know many of you already know this, but I'm just going to clarify for those that maybe are a little bit newer to working with in this field. But what are psychotic symptoms? So first of all, psychotic symptoms are delusions, things that people believe as truth that are not actually factual, things in their belief systems. Um, what are hallucinations? Things that people see, hear, feel, taste, smell, that they sense, they perceive as real that are not actually there. Disorganized speech and disorganized behavior. So that can be, um, tangential speech or um, circumstantial speech or um, what can be called word salad where people are talking in just a lot of words that don't seem to make sense. Um, and disorganized behavior, kind of chaotic behavior. So those are considered what, what are called positive symptoms and they're positive in that they're things that happen. Then there's a group of symptoms that are called negative symptoms in that there's the absence of things. So the negative symptoms that are part of psychotic symptoms are 
blunted affect, so it's like flat affect, alogia, a lack of speech, asociality, asociality, like a lack of socializing, avolition, a lack of motivation, um, and anhedonia, a lack of pleasure. So this is a variety of symptoms to achieve, achieve to qualify for a diagnosis of delusional disorder or schizophrenia, you have to have different numbers or different combinations of these symptoms. So psychosis can be a part of a lot of different disorders. Um, we're gonna primarily, I'm, I'm gonna primarily talk about older adults with delusional disorder and older adults with schizophrenia or schizo, schizoaffective disorder. But also what I I'm talking about can be relevant to these other disorders to some extent, but not necessarily. So we're not gonna focus on the other disorders, um, but in your work, you'll see if you think this is relevant to some of the other disorders. But psychotic symptoms can be part of bipolar disorder. So people can be, who have mania and depression um, may have psychotic symptoms associated with either the depressive swing or the manic swing. Major depressive disorder with psychotic features ha can have delusions or hallucinations that are psychotic. Substance abuse, um, we're, as many of you know, we are seeing a lot of meth use, a lot of methamphetamine use, and there's a lot of psychotic features with that, as well as other forms of substance abuse. Delirium, Delirium is a medical condition that can include psychotic delusions and or hallucinations. Dementia can have delusions and or hallucinations and other neurological and medical disorders of which we won't, we won't be talking about today. So I'm gonna start off by talking about delusional disorder and, with, and we'll also talk about schizophrenia. But part of, part of the reason I'm starting with delusional disorder is because with older adults, there is a, a syndrome of delusional disorder or a type of delusional disorder that can really develop a little more often with older adults. And it's, it can be kind of specific to an aging person off maybe a, oh, I'll get into some of the details soon, but um, in our work, in working with older adults at Heritage Clinic, we've seen a lot of people with delusional disorder that I think is a little bit different than someone with <clears throat> an, a lifelong schizophrenia. And I, I wanna make these distinctions. So the definition of delusional disorder in the ICD-10-CM is that the person has had delusions at, for at least three months. In the DSM-5, it's one month, that's slight different, well, some difference, um, of believing things that other people do not believe. Um, the person has not met this, the criteria for schizophrenia. In the DSM-5, it says that the person's functioning is not markedly impaired outside of the impact of the delusion and mood episodes are brief. So the, th the third bullet is, is kind of important in that people with a delusional disorder, their life might 
be pretty functional, except that they have some delusions. So an example is an older adult who um, is, has worked most of his life, he retired, he is living alone now, his wife died, and he believes that people are breaking into his house and stealing his medicine bottles. And that's the delusion. It's not a, a widespread delusion or hallucination, but that is a, a delusional disorder. In the DSM-5, there are ver a variety of types of subtypes of delusional disorder. It can be erotomanic, where the delusion is about a love life or sexuality. Grandiose, where the delusion is about oneself um, importance. A jealous delusional set of uh, jealousy, that's sort of obvious. Persecutory, which is the most common. So, you know, we talk about a paranoid delusional disorder, someone persecutory, they think someone's stealing that from them, someone's after them, someone's out to get them. Those are the, the most common that we see. And a somatic delusional disorder, which is not very common, but we, we do see it sometimes where someone is convinced that they have a certain medical disorder to, to a delusional degree, and then mixed or unspecified. So in aging, so delusional disorder of a late life onset, a persecutory type, it used to be called, this This is an outdated term, paraphrenia, but I find it useful. There's a literature in the geropsych literature on paraphrenia, and it kind of really narrows down a syndrome that I think we see a fair bit with older adults, and it's worth kind of being aware of and ready to recognize it you know, when you see it in your, in your work. It is often associated, and this is why it comes up more with aging, with um, sensory loss. So as a person is not as able to interact with the reality of the world, they don't see as well and or they don't hear as well, they're more prone to like thinking things up. Um, not think, that doesn't sound quite right, but thinking things are happening when they may not. I don't know if you, any of you have ever experienced sort of seeing something out of the corner of your eye and getting a little scared of it and then looking at it and then realizing, oh, that's just a rock, that's just a tree. Um, and you, one can imagine that seeing a tree that's sort of about the size of a human being out of the corner of your eye and then kind of getting scared about it, but you, that could get built into a delusion perhaps. Social isolation, this is more commonly associated with people that have few or no children, are unmarried at this point, widowed or divorced or never married, often living alone. There's more time for, for thoughts to kind of build up in one's mind. Early memory loss, this might, this seems to be more common in the early stages of dementia where One's not remembering things. So again, there's more room for things to kind of get built up. I have to say that during the pandemic and quarantining and isolation, some of these factors have been more at play with, I think, putting some of our elders at more at risk of developing this. 
Um, delusional disorder, late life onset can, may also be associated with people that have had recent trauma, people who are particularly sensitive in relationships. Um, again, they may fu function fairly adequately other than the delusion. So it doesn't look like a widespread sort of schizophrenia. May be associated with early trauma, seems to be more frequent among women, may also be associated with people being bedbound. And I think that's related to sensory deprivation and isolation. Again, which I think, I think has been a little bit more apparent during the pandemic. So one of the things that got me interested in working with older adults with delusional disorder is our clinic, which I guess it was started in 1979, started off our very first program at Heritage Clinic was a contract with the Pasadena Police Department where we were contracted to offer counseling sessions to crime, the elder, older adult crime victims in Pasadena. And what we found over time is that we, the police started to um, talk to us about people that thought they had been victims of crime, but weren't. So the police would be called out to an older adult's home to check for break-ins and there was no, no sign of a break-in. Um, and then they would get a call from the same older adult maybe several times a week that someone was breaking into their house and the police would be, you know, try to be helpful but didn't know how to help somebody like this where there was no break-in, no evidence of actual crime but they kept getting called out. So they started referring these people to us. And this is where we got kind of more familiar with this syndrome of paraphrenia, where like the criteria I just went through. Um, so an example was a client who was an older adult man who's was separated from his wife. He had a wife, but she didn't live with him. He had no children living with him. And he started um, feeling like he de deserved, he was getting mailings uh, for sweepstakes and he was responding to them and thinking that the sweepstakes were, um, that he was, a, he was, he kept calling about sweepstakes, but he wasn't getting the money for the sweepstakes. And so he kept calling the police, kept calling the police. And he thought the sweepstakes owed him money. You know, there, there are these scams that make it seem like that, but it got to a delusional degree and he was calling the police several times a week. And so the police asked us to intervene with him. And let me see what my next, yeah. So just, just sort of what we did with this man is we went to, at first to offer our, our mental health services. And he said, no, I don't need counseling. I'm not crazy. I'm sure many of you have heard that term. I'm not crazy. Um, and so we needed to back up a little bit and just go and visit him. And, and yet he wanted to talk. He was very lonely. He very isolated and he wanted to talk. So we talked, we just stood on his front porch and he stood on the front door and we just talked to, with him. Um, on the porch while he, while he was inside. And we just gradually developed a relationship with him coming back. And even though he told us many times he wasn't crazy and he 
did not need counseling. Um, he did not object to us coming back to talk with him and to see how he's doing. And over time we started, he just kept talking to us and we would listen and we were able to empathize with him about how lonely he felt and how scared he felt and how he needed, felt deprived and needed money. Um, and we were able to, in developing a relationship with him, he never stopped believing that he was being stolen from, but he did reduce the calls from several times a week to maybe once or so a month. People wanted to ask so far? Yeah, just about a question for when early dementia starts, at what age? Oh, um, it could be any age. So the early on, the beginning, um, early onset dementia would be a, a form of dementia that could start in someone's 40s or 50s. But what I'm referring to is the, the beginning stages of dementia, which could happen at, at, at any age at all. Well, any age, probably from, I mean, it could happen in one's late 30s, but maybe 40s, 50s, but 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, anywhere up from that. And the next question is, when you refer to late life onset, what age is that? Um, yeah, and, and the, the, like when you look in the literature, people use different ages, but on average, maybe we're talking around 60. Because, but sometimes they use 45 as late life onset, which I don't, I don't get that myself, but the ages that they use in the literature, either clinical or research literatures, let's say 50s and up. And the next question is, is the prognosis worse with early onset dementia? Oh, people will die younger, if that's what you're asking. Yeah. In terms of how bad it gets, usually dementia can get to being pretty bad before a person dies, but they will die younger. Yeah. And that's all okay. the questions so far. Okay, great. Um, so diagnosis of schizophrenia. So with to, to qualify for a diagnosis of schizophrenia, a person needs to have two or more of the following. Delusions, hallucinations, disorganized speech, grossly disorganized behavior, or catatonic behavior is when a person gets just like really still, really still for a very, very long time. Um, negative symptoms as we talked about before. So this is to have a diagnosis of schizophrenia, a person is gonna have more psychotic symptoms. And th th there are other criteria for schizophrenia in terms of how long it's gone, gone on. Um, and schizoaffective disorder, which I know I'm seeing a lot of diagnoses of schizoaffective disorder in our clinic. It's basically a person that has the presentation of schizophrenia plus either depressive symptoms or manic symptoms or both. So schizophrenia plus an affective disorder. So as people age, what happens with schizophrenia? So 
Um, there's a higher mortality rate. People die at a younger age, people that have had a lifelong or a diagnosis of schizophrenia from early adulthood. They have a higher risk for developing dementia. They have significant medical comorbidities, and we'll go into that a little more, a little bit later. The literature is mixed as to whether schizophrenia gets worse with age or better with age. Um, it's just, the literature is just mixed. So I, I don't know what to say. I think what it means is that some people, their symptoms improve or lessen with age, and some people, their symptoms worsen with age. Um, it's been found, the, the, there's a question in the literature, can you develop schizophrenia? Most um, diagnoses of schizophrenia start in a person's very, very late teens or early 20s. Um, however, people can develop schizophrenia over the age of 44, 45, and can develop schizophrenia even later in life in their 60s. So there's some statistics about that. So in terms of the treatment of choice, much of the literature, when you, I read the literature, the treatment of choice or the treatment that the literature discusses for people with psychotic disorders is antipsychotic medication. It's often really considered essential that a person gets on antipsychotic medication. You'll see that I disagree with that. I don't, I'm not in agreement with that, which is a little bit, unusual, but I'm not alone. Um, psychosocial support. And I'm not against medication. I'm not saying that it shouldn't be. I think it's often very, very, very important. But I don't, I, I think we depend on it sometimes too much. Um, family support, case management, and skills building. This is what most of the literature talks about in terms of treatment for people with delusional disorder and, and schizophrenia. And yet, you know, I, I imagine for many of you in your clinics, um, it's not that different, pretty similar to what we're experiencing in Heritage Clinic. There are a lot of older adults who don't wanna take medication. Um, in terms of family support, there's a lot of um, persons with schizophrenia or delusional disorder that don't have family to support them. Long-term use of antipsychotics carry many, many medical risks. Some of them are significant weight gain, which often can contribute to diabetes. Um, then tardive dyskinesia, that's the, you'll see people that have used antipsychotics for a long time, not all, um, and different medications have different um, side effect profiles, but Tardive dyskinesia is when you'll see someone kind of doing these kind of movements um, that are really are involuntary and a lot of times with the tongue. And that can be, you know, quite concerning to people. Um, I think focusing only on medication can minimize the deeper psycho-spiritual aspects of a client's being. And that's probably the part that I'm most concerned about. Um, it, we sometimes, when we focus on medication, we dismiss the impact of the client's developmental and trauma history. And also focusing on medication can leave the client feeling lonely, like they're not really being listened to as a psycho-spiritual human being. And that seems important to me. So 
what I'm trying, what I'm, I have found is that psychotherapeutic techniques can be a beneficial to adjunct to medication and case management, or it can be the only treatment when a client refuses, well, along with case management, but when a client refuses medication. Um, so this is just another tool, another technique that one can add in to all the other treatments that we have. So I don't, don't get me wrong in thinking that I'm saying we shouldn't prescribe medication. I'm not, I'm not saying that, but we do have a number of clients like the, the gentleman I described earlier from our crime victims program, who wasn't really a crime victim. Um, he wasn't going to take medication, but we needed to help him have a psychotherapeutic, um, a, a relational experience it was very, very helpful. So in providing this kind of approach, the therapist's relationship with the client is the relationship. That is the critical component. And really I would add in case manager, peer, psychiatrist, whatever your role is, I think the relationship that you as the person involved in treatment is really important. So this is, these techniques are available to case managers as well as to, to therapists and peers as well. Um, the relationship needs to be warm, genuine, egalitarian, validating, and not judgmental from the client's point of view. And so I, I put that parenthetical statement in because sometimes we're so, well, I'm not being judgmental because we're not feeling judgmental, but does the client feel judged? So it's, you know, we'll talk more as we go through this, but these clients with um, schizophrenic disorders as well as delusional disorders are often very sensitive. And a word can sound judgmental. A word that sounds like a normal word to me or to you can carry judgmental experience for the client. So it's non-judgmental from the client's point of view, which we have to kind of try to figure out. A positive therapeutic alliance during therapy for persons with psychosis has been found to contribute to better outcome, even for usual routine treatment. So having a warm, genuine, egalitarian, validating, and non-judgmental relationship is important, whether we're also the persons being treated with other modalities at the same time. So the approach to work, I'm gonna talk about working with people with either schizophrenia and delusional or delusional disorder. And then a little later, I'm gonna talk about some differences that I think are important be between treating the, those two different disorders. And I think there's some significant difference. So leading up to psychotherapy, will include a gradual developing of the relationship, including outreach and engagement may be lengthy. So, you know, we use these terms outreach and engagement quite a bit. I don't know if we need to really define them, but outreach is gonna be the more like finding people, um, being referred to people or going out on the street and talking with people. Um, and then engagement will be the beginnings of the development of a more of a one-on-one -on -one personal relationship. The person is going to be suspicious 
at the beginning. What are you doing here? Why are you here? Like, um, they're going to be self-protecting. They're going to be protecting themselves from further hurt um, and, and building up expectations. They very well may verbalize refusal of formal mental health treatment. Quote, unquote, I'm not crazy. Um, they are often quite suspicious of, of psychological, psychiatric mental health um, professionals and treatments for a variety of reasons, but they've been let down and they've been hurt in the past, as well as being, you know, um, feeling uh, persecuted or having paranoid or persecutory delusions or hallucinations. But these people often really also want to talk, want human beings in their life. So while in the mental health world, we need to have consent from people before we can provide psychotherapy, I would, we would, at least in our work at Heritage Clinic, we consider if a person verbalizes a desire for further contact, that we take that as consent for us to continue working with them. So if they say, no, don't come back, then they are saying, no, don't come back. But if they say, if, if, if they say well, I'm not crazy, I don't need therapy, I don't need counseling, but you, and then you say, well, okay, fine, can I come back and check on you? And they, if they say yes, then they are um, consenting to our presence in their life. Contacts, I think at the beginning may need to be brief and spread out. I think overwhelming a person with a lot of time and a lot of visits may not be um, welcome. Although some people, it, it can be, that's not true across the board. Um, in order to start formal mental health treatment, we do need a consent to treatment, but I, we often have to wait after many, many contacts before someone will agree to consent to formal mental health treatment. Um, and some will not ever. Um, in our clinic, we don't, while we want to get assigned consent, if, if, it, if it's document, if it's verbal and documented by the clinician, sometimes that is, is we, we don't get them to sign if they are extremely suspicious. Um, Additionally, additionally, on a client care plan, we don't push to have them sign it if they are, um, you know, very, very sensitive and um, hesitant to sign. So once they're in treatment, that the one of the kind of Main, one of the main techniques in providing psychotherapeutic treatment with people with psychotic disorders is to empathize with their feelings while not challenging their delusions. So it is very um, human when someone says, someone's stealing from me, they're breaking into my house, they're coming in from that, they're coming in from that window um, it doesn't help them for me to say, no, the window's locked. It's not broken. There's no way they could get in. I could tell nobody's been coming in. Um, it doesn't help. The, the person, the client um, will 
feel, m most of them will feel like, you don't get it. You think I'm crazy. Because to me, I can tell someone's coming in and stealing from me. So even though it's very natural to feel pulled to reassure them because they're scared and our, our empathy is like, oh, I want to reassure you that no, no, you're safe. You're safe. But it, it, it does, it may like for a moment feel reassuring to them and it may not, but mo in the long run, then they just feel more alone because we're not getting their inner experience. It's also not useful to agree with their delusion. So another tactic that I think can be tempting is to say, oh, well, let me help you get your locks fixed. I see, oh, I, I see that it's hard for you that people are breaking in. Let me help you get your locks fixed. That is also a tempting response, but in, in, in our experience, I found that if we kind of agree with their delusions and we join them, that later in the work, um, the, we can start, we won't be able to help them kind of pull out of the delusion because they'll say, well, you agreed with me that people were breaking in. And I think as we work with them, hopefully, this doesn't always happen, but hopefully we can kind of see that there's part of them that doesn't really completely believe their own misperceptions. And they're looking to us to help them get out of some of that misperception of the world. So what I'm encouraging is that we walk a fine line between agreeing and challenging, um, but empathize with their feelings. So empathize, so let me, See if I have, yeah, I have an example. Gene, uh, anything anybody wants to ask yet? Or comment? There's just a comment about oftentimes delusions aren't helped much with medication. Uh-huh, yep. So there's another reason to have other tools to use. True, true. Okay, so here's an example of the approach that I'm describing. So. This was a client in our clinic who had a delusional disorder, a late life delusional disorder. So client G complained that drug traffickers were invading her apartment and using it as a base for their activities. She knew they'd been there by how the nap on the fabric of the couch had been disturbed. And she could feel them scratching her arm and hearing them whisper her name. So she had um, visual, um, tactile, and auditory delusions. The clinician said she could understand how terrifying her life had become. She could really understand how scared and disturbed G was. So she's empathizing with the fear and feeling disturbed and scared and terrified. She's not agreeing that the drug crackers, traffickers were coming in and she's not challenging it. Um, another example is that a client complains with great agitation that people are going to come and kill her daughter. The clinician could empathize with something like, it must be very scary to feel like someone could kill 
your daughter that her life is in danger. So it takes thinking about the wording where we're not agreeing that someone's coming and we're not challenging it, but we're, we're talking about how scary it is that she feels like someone could kill her daughter. Um, so empathizing with the feeling is different from reassurance, which would be no, no one's coming to kill your daughter. And it's also different from empathizing with the fact that she's having a delusion. It must be so upsetting to hear voices say that. So that's a, a slight difference. Um, reassurance and noting the presence of non-reality can, can both give the client the message that their perception of reality is not believed and thus threatening their ability to trust you. So that can make it harder for them to believe that you're really, you're really with them. Um, so a number of writers, including Frieda Fromm Reichman, who's a, 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 you know, a psychoanalyst from a previous generation, but talk about people with schizophrenia as being exquisitely sensitive to feeling rejected. It's very, very easy for them to receive the message that their misperceiving reality usually feels like judgment. So when when they hear a statement from professionals that what they're thinking isn't true, it can feel like judgment. It can feel like you're judging their perception of the world. So that's what I think we wanna to try to steer clear from. And what we really are aiming at is helping the client feel valued and understood. Um, they often feel really relieved to have someone listen to their concerns without telling them that they're crazy. So an initial goal for the clinician is to help the client feel that his or her feelings are heard and contained, that the fears of the neighbors intruding into her apartment and spreading, for example, spreading bleach on the floor, that the, the, the clinician really understands that they feel scared. A longer term goal can be to help the client integrate a more full range of emotions, including feelings of painful personal events. So we'll get, let me, I'll be ex explaining that here with this example. So going back to client G. So client G is the, the client who felt like drug traffickers were coming into the apartment and they were messing up the nap of the fabric and she could feel them kind of on her arm. So over time in the therapeutic relationship, the client began to tell the clinician that her brother instigated the activity. So at first it was these drug traffickers, these kind of um, unnamed drug traffickers, but as she developed a, a relationship with the clinician and the clinician was consistent, came every week, talked and listened, she brought up that her brother instigated the activity. So she's bringing, was starting to bring her brother into the, what she was talking about. It got a little closer to something personal. So the clinician listened for the underlying themes of the client's relationship with the brother. 
And G talked in a way that the clinician could gather or hypothesize that G, G felt overly dependent on the brother and verbally abused and physically threatened by the brother. And yet the brother was her only living relative. So the brother, you know, um, was somewhat verbally abusive to, the, to G. The brother came over and borrowed things or, you know, she gave things to the brother. She felt like a little bit scared by the brother. And yet she was very lonely. This woman was very lonely. And her brother is really the only person in her life. So G was kind of intimating at these things and the clinician was able to pick up on these themes. So the clinician helped, the clinician very gently started to empathize with the client being angry at her brother, but also her fear of being alone if she didn't have contact with the brother. So with time, the clinician was empathizing with a deeper layer of feelings. Whereas at the beginning, the clinician was kind of empathizing with the fear of the drug, the sense that the feeling that drug traffickers were coming in. But then with time, she could empathize with her anger at her brother, but her fear of losing her brother, relationship with her brother. So gaining an understanding of the details of the delusions, including what causes maybe isn't the right word there, but what triggers them, how they make the client feel, when and why they come and go, can help the clinician make hypotheses about how the delusions are related to events and feelings in the client's life. So this is another kernel of this treatment, which isn't necessarily easy, um, but it takes us listening to the whole picture of the delusions and kind of noticing when they're more frequent, when they're less frequent, what maybe happened right before, um, and how that all might, what kind of meaning that might make. Uh, another example is a client who was referred to us by the police department, a woman that called the police department thinking she was being broken into. And with time, with the relationship, we started to notice that she called the police more often on weekends that her son did not visit her. She had a son that lived in Santa Barbara and he visited her sometimes, but on the weekends he did not visit her. After that, she seemed to call the police more often. And so we were able to make the connection that her fear of people breaking in and stealing from her was related to her missing her son. And we were able to make some empathic statements about that. Um, any other chat questions or comments? Yes. When would be an appropriate time to challenge their delusions? I don't know. Um, hmm. I'm not advocating for challenging their delusions at all. Um, I do think with clients that are become aware of their, their um, psychotic disorders and, and, and can own that, yes, I have schizophrenia, I have hallucinations and delusions that get in the way of my life, 
I want to work on reducing the stresses that contribute to them. I think then that would be a time in treatment where you could challenge the delusions or the hallucinations. In my experience, um, people with schizophrenia that have been treated, have been on medication, and then have like resurgences of the psychotic disorder, it can be helpful at that point to help them learn how to self-challenge their own psychotic symptoms. Um, that would be, you know, in a different phase of treatment that some of the people I'm talking about here never get to that phase of treatment. So, so far the kind of client I'm talking about hasn't gotten to the self-awareness that I, yes, I do, I do, kind of have this tendency to think people break in, but they don't, but I tend to feel that way, mostly when I'm feeling really lonely. And, um, and then you can develop, help them develop a, a plan for reducing triggers and what to do when they start to feel that way. And it could include self-challenging them. Um, so another longer term goal with working with clients like this would could be to facilitate antipsychotic medication, which they might agree to at some point. I have found with people with this late life onset delusional disorder, sometimes after several couple, couple two, three years of treatment, there's like they've developed a relationship with a, 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 a therapist or a case manager and, and the the clinician might say, how about I go with you to your doctor's appointment? Or how about we go to a doctor appointment together and ask the doctor for a, something to help with your nerves or something to help with sleep. And they might agree to a medication after some time of outreach. Um, so they may after quite some time of treatment, but then they might not. Um, Another longer term goal is to help them get medical treatment for associated illnesses, which can reduce some of the physical stresses that probably contribute to increased psychotic experiences. So um, getting other medical illnesses and pain treated can really help. Sometimes clients like this have not gone to see a doctor in a very long time, and it can help if we go with them. Um, a helping them get hearing aids and vision aids can help help them quite a bit. Um, so now I want to kind of go into a specific, a little bit more in depth into this approach to treatment. So um, uh, some years ago, I heard a woman, Sharon Dunn, or I, I think she's had two last names. I'm not sure if she got married or unmarried or what, but Maeda, Sher Shannon Maeda Dunn or Sharon Shannon Dunn Maeda, but she's recently, relatively recently, come out with this book, Healing the Distress of Psychosis, Listening with Psychotic Ears. And I found this book to be really a great book for this type of approach to psychotherapeutic intervention with people with psychotic disorders. So I, I really highly recommend this book for anyone that wants to go into this in more depth. Uh, it, it really isn't not a hard, it's a thick book, but it's not hard to read. Um, so in her approach, she says that 
it can seem like the communications of persons with psychotic symptoms are bizarre and nonsensical. We often talk about bizarre and, um, and it's understandable, but another perspective that she said is that they're due to the client's specific neurobiology and past experiences that these expressions are their method of communicating their meaning. And our job is to understand their meaning by tuning into each person's unique communication pattern and decoding what, what their verbal is, what they're communicating, what it means. The high sensitivity in interpersonal relationships of people with psychotic disorders probably is due to a particularly high sensitive temperament. They were born with a, a, a very sensitive temperament and their, their genetics and their neurobiology puts them at, at a high, um, a low threshold for things seeming um, different than reality. Plus developmental events, often trauma and past experiences, um, both within and outside of the mental health treatment. And they have often felt disregarded and treated as if they're quote unquote crazy. So here's an example um, of another example of decoding the meaning of someone's what they're saying. So this, so um, Shannon Dunn's work really includes a lot of people with schizophrenia, schizoaffective, as well as delusional disorders. But she talks a lot about schizophrenia and schizoaffective disorders. So a client um, with schizoaffective diagnosis says she's poisoning me. She's performing witchcraft regarding it. Actually, you know what? This is not an example from Shannon Dunn. This is an example from our clinic. Um, a client, a, a, a 30, this was actually a, a client in his 30s with schizoaffective disorder saying, she, my mother, is poisoning me. She's performing witchcraft regarding his mother who he lives with and depends on to help him with day-to-day -day support. The mother, a Latina immigrant from Mexico, complains to the clinician that she tries really hard to support her son, but feels devastated that he thinks she's poisoning him with the food she cooks. And you know, I, I put in the cultural piece because a, a Latina mother often cooking food as many mothers, but really thinks it's so important for nurturing your child, but then the son feels like he's being poisoned. So the client, um, has been disruptive, leaving home for days at a time, making it unclear where he goes. The mother's worried about him. He's gotten more psychotic. The therapist listens to what the client is saying, as well as his nonverbal signals, and explores what he means and how he feels um, that he's being po poisoned and submitted to witchcraft. And over many sessions, and with consistency and trust, the therapist says that perhaps he's feeling unloved by his mother. And he says, yes, she walks right by me and she doesn't see me. And as soon as he says that and the therapist gets it, his agitation just decreased because he felt heard that yes, he feels unloved. Even though the mother loves him, the mother's doing her best 
Um, but there are times that she walks right by him and doesn't really look at him or talk to him. And with repetitions of this empathy from the therapist of feeling unloved, he becomes a little more able to decrease the, the delusion and starts to kind of um, understand that his mother has a hard time taking care of him too, but she does care for him. And that his delusions of being poisoned decrease. Um, how are we doing? So here's another example from, from the book, a Shannon Dunn's book. A 36-year-old man with a history of mental illness walked around the locked unit he was on muttering, just call me Coca-Cola. And that could sound bizarre and meaningless, but she really sort of learned to listen to him and started and realized that he just wanted the pleasures of an everyday life, including a simple Coca-Cola. He just wanted to be kind of a normal person drinking a normal drink. Um, and when she was able to reflect that to him, his agitation just, just decreased. So uh, this might gonna pause just for a minute here. Any, anything else, questions? Yes, uh, we have a specific client question. I have a client who has a lot of anxieties about taking medications. They are worried about the side effects or impacts on their body, but also appear to be suspicious about doctors and psychiatrists. What would you recommend? Um, kind of this approach that I, I'm getting that book. <laughs> getting Shannon Dunn's book and reading it and trying to develop a relationship with this person over time and try to really understand what that person wants and what that person is trying to, to communicate and say. And, and, and hold off on the, don't push the medication for a while. Okay, and the, the next question is, what is the process to help a patient with being misdiagnosed for a mental health disorder by a psychiatrist? Ooh. That will probably depend on your clinic. Um, if you think the diagnosis is different than what the psychiatrist thinks, that probably some kind of policy in your clinic of what to do about that. Uh, well, I guess another thing you could do is make an appointment with a psychiatrist and just say, hey, this is what I'm seeing. What do you think about this or that? Um, so in thinking about, when we're trying to think about what does this mean? This person says, just call me Coca-Cola. It's like, huh? You're not Coca-Cola, your name is Robert. Um, you know, it doesn't make any sense out of the blue to us. But how are we gonna hypothesize? How are we gonna to try to be detectives to try to figure out what they might mean so that we can then verbalize it and see if they, if it kind of decreases their agitation or if it increases their agitation or anxiety. So these are some of the things, again, this is from Dunn's book, but these are some of the feelings to consider that they might be feeling. Just thoughts to put in your head to consider. They might really wanna be in denial that they have a psychotic disorder. 
who wants to have that? They might just want to deny it and live, try not to think about it. They might be extremely lonely and disconnected. They might have a loss of dreams. They might have, most people go into younger adulthood or even later adulthood wanting something in life, wanting marriage and a family, wanting to be a professional, wanting a certain kind of art, you know, career, whatever. But they might be feeling a loss of dreams. Uh, they might be feeling really vulnerable and not safe and need to be hypervigilant. Certainly that's true. Well, for many, many people with psychotic disorders, maybe especially including people living on the streets, right? They might have a feeling of emptiness. They very well might be feeling inadequate, a lot of shame. And this is where the non-judgment is so important. They might be feeling guilt for things they have done or haven't done or feel like they've done. They may very well be feeling a lot lack of power. They may be feeling really angry and enraged, but many people are very afraid of their anger and that gets very suppressed. A lot of fear, anger, agitation, anxiety and agitation. That's a little more apparent in people like this usually. They also have pleasure in relationships. They get rewards from being in relationships. So we also want to think about empathizing with the positive feelings, not just the negative. You know, I don't mean to only emphasize the negative. They may feel positive, like seeing the, the sunrise, you know, seeing the snow on the mountains. Um, they may feel happy about surprises like birthday cake or something, I don't know. Um, they may feel satisfaction in accomplishing some kind of work. Um, they may just like the rest of us have kind of quality of life experiences like eating, having warmth, having money, um, having um, some agency in life. So these are just some lists of things to keep in mind. I mean, these are all feelings we all have, right? Um, and they, these people do too. All right, so continuing on with from some pointers from Shannon Dunn's book. So the method that she describes is to ask the client about current complaints and early life and early life, including de details of significant people and situations that impacted the person's early life. Listen for themes in the complaints and in the symptoms. So it, it takes kind of listening um, loosely, kind of just trying to put together some ideas, like using your own intuition, listening for themes, trying to hype, and also using your own personal feelings about things. Um, try to hypothesize about the significance or the meaning of the expressions and offer to the client the suggested connection. Um, and if you're able to kind of suggest, well, maybe, you know, and we wouldn't do this right away, but after some time of listening, like the man that felt like his mother was poisoning him and doing witchcraft on him. If, if you're able to make the suggested connection between, wow, it sounds like when you feel not seen, not listened to, 
that it feels like she's um, she's poisoning you. And with time and with trust, you know, if and and you might say something with that, and he might say, no, that's not right. Or if he if he seems to like agree, or at least kind of the agitation goes down, he can start to make the conscious choice about holding on to the the meaning of the symptom. Um, and then he can start to realize, and this is maybe the question one of you asked earlier about when would you challenge? Again, I wouldn't challenge someone's delusion, but if he can start to challenge, self-challenge it um, and having more of a conscious choice about holding on to the symptom. So tuning into the meaning of the client's communication, listening as if listening in another language, decoding metaphors. And at the same time, it's helpful to inquire about their trauma history. Maybe not, um, definitely not aggressively asking and not asking a lot of, lot of you know, I know in our AFA that we use, there's a series of trauma questions go boom, 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 which really for someone like this, I think is too much. And a client often will have to deny it or it can be kind of overly provocative, but in a, in a gradual way, um, affirming the client for revealing them, identifying support. So if you're asking directly about previous trauma or a trauma history, you want to affirm the client for revealing them, then you want to like really find out what kind of supports they have because it's going to stir up feelings. It's going to stir up feelings, assessing for safety and checking for emotional stability at the end of the session. And then maybe, you know, later on that day or the next day. So I think it's important to know about a client's trauma history. And there's often a connection between a client's, the content of the psychotic symptoms and the nature of the past trauma. And with, it is sometimes useful to consider that psychotic symptoms are like a psychotic flashback. Like when we work with trauma clients, and these are often our trauma clients that we have coded their trauma into psychotic symptoms. Um, but there is often a, a, a correlation between the content of the psychotic symptoms and the nature of past trauma. Um, and we just really want to show curiosity about what the person's trying to communicate rather than dismissing it as bizarre. We want to communicate a commitment of unconditional helping attitude, compassion. Um, we want to use our own intuition, considering the person in their context, using your own introspection to listen for feelings, situations, and dynamics. So, you know, in addition to wanting to know their history, trauma, developmental and, and lifelong trauma and developmental events, we also want to know kind of what's happening in their life. Like the example I described earlier where the woman seemed to call the police more often on weekends where her son did not come to visit. So knowing the comings and goings, what's happening in a person's life if we can, the client can report that to us, or sometimes it's helpful to have other people kind of giving us information if the client is uh, okay with that. People with psychotic symptoms often are aware of situations and react to them, 
but have become disconnected from their emotional reactions and can't necessarily say, I'm sad because my son didn't come to visit. But instead she has these other symptoms. Um, the second bullet is, seems really important. Respect the client's attachment needs within the relationship as well as other interpersonal relationships. So thinking about clients with psychotic disorders as being especially sensitive, we wanna also, the, the same client that got more psychotic after her son didn't visit her, got more psychotic when the clinician had vacations or was sick. And it's important to realize that the client will start to value their relationship with you quite a bit. So if you miss a session or if they miss a session with you, that could contribute to them feeling more abandoned or rejected or judged or lonely. Um, okay. So, yeah, there's, there's a fair bit of research that Shannon um, Maeda done talks about where they talk about the, <clears throat> Auditory hallucinations, many, many people with hallucinations have had a lot of trauma. Okay. And yeah. Okay, so I wanted to do, do a little exercise. If you all could find something to write on, pull out a piece of paper and a pen, or if you wanna write on <clears throat> one of your devices. But just think about, I know, some of you have not had clients with hallucinations or delusions, but most of you said that you have. So think about one of your clients that have talked about hallucinations or delusions or have displayed them. And um, think about something that the client said, thinking about his or her communication, verbal as well as nonverbal. And just write down what was the content of their delusion or hallucination? You know, were they saying people have been stealing from me? Do they say um, people are getting into my body? Do they say my spouse is having an affair? Did they say what, what, what the content was? And then think about it for a minute. What, what do you think they're trying to say? What feeling do you think they're trying to express that it might be hard for them to express directly? And then if any of you noticed anything um, in trying to think about that, if you wanna put anything about your experience doing that in the chat, were you able to kind of come up with a thought about what they're trying to express that they're not able to express directly? So that's just something to think about to kind of use your in intuition, your clinical judgment to kind of think about it. I wanted and we, to- yeah. Oh, sorry, we had one more comment. One oh, good, of my good. clients always talks about how someone is going to harm her children, her adult children. I mm -hmm. never thought of it in the context that you just discussed. I think she misses her kids and co the communication she has yeah. with them. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. 
And then um, I had a client with schizophrenia who refused to eat anything but candy and was starting to have health consequences. Instead of trying to stop the candy eating, we met over a series of sessions and his deep sadness came out, reflected to him. He eventually said, I eat a lot of sugar for the bitterness of life. Oh, wow. To try to sweeten, try to find some more sweetness in life. Yeah, that's telling. Um, so here's just another example. I just try to give examples to give different kind of perspectives on this, but um, a client with diagnosis of schizophrenia seems to talk nonsense. With several visits to the client, the clinician hears the themes, people are coming into my room, people are infiltrating the air, the FBI is listening to my phone conversations. So some of the different ways you might respond, one would be, what makes you think that? So that's challenging and kind of, um, judging. Reassurance, no, no one can listen into the phone calls. So that's kind of like just kind of denying their sense of reality. Joining into the delusion, oh, I can see why you want us to get you a new phone, which I don't think is helpful in the long run. It could feel good to them right at the beginning. And I think we can feel like doing that. But the um, the next point, validating the emotion that's closer to conscious awareness. Wow, that sounds like that would feel really irritating. Or validating a deeper level of emotion. That sounds like that would feel intrusive and enraging. So for the last two bullet points, what I have seen work best early in treatment to go with validating the emotion that's closer to the surface and once a relationship's been established and you have better sense of the person to try to validate the level of emotion that's deeper. So those are some examples. Um, okay, I'm gonna, we're gonna break into groups for just for 10 minutes, 10 to 12 minutes. Um, and you got emailed ahead of time, the instructions Jeet is putting it in the chat and also it's on the page, the UCLA homepage, the instructions. But these are the instructions. You're gonna role play a client or an imagined person that has psychotic experience. And you're gonna take turns trying this out. So one of you be the therapist and listen with your heart, empathize with the feelings and then um, see what it feels like while you're the client. And then we'll, we'll um, tell you when five minutes are up and switch roles. Um, I, I kind of want to make a difference. You know, we start, I started off talking about delusional disorder and then went into schizophrenia, schizoaffective, and just some differences in treating the two with older adults. Um, I think with, with um, people with schizophrenia, their life functioning overall has been more, more disturbed in general. They usually have more severe, more long-term psychotic disturbance. They have weaker ego strength, weaker psychological defenses. They cannot handle as much or as fast or as deep processing of strong, strong emotions. They can, to some extent, 
but we have to be careful in how much we bring up really deep issues. Um, they may have very in minimal interpersonal relationships. They may be very isolated, having poor interpersonal skills, more isolated, um, and, and probably a stronger fear of getting close to other people or to us. Um, already gone over that. So with people with schizophrenia, empathizing with the deeply underlying feelings might exacerbate psychosis if pursued too soon and too much at a time. So talking a lot about trauma, about really deep feelings need to go slow and maybe it's not a good idea with some people. Um, you need to have had a, a, a really developed a relationship where the person can feel trusting and you can go slowly, very slowly when talking about traumatic or grief events. And when the person is actively hallucinating, it's important to not probe deeply and to really provide safety and structure. Medication can be important. Um, day structure can be important. Milieu treatment can be important. There are a lot of interventions that talk about milieu treatment, structuring, you know, day programs, hospitalization, case management, skills building. Um, consistency is really important. Being dependable, being completely dependable and talking about it when you can't, like if you're sick or you go on vacation. Sometimes the client needs to back up and talk about concrete things and not emotions. Um, an example, I have of a clinician that would go to see a client in his apartment and he always kept the TV on and the clinician was kind of upset that he kept the TV on, but he needed to be able to refer to what was going on on the screen to kind of give him some safety of not getting too, too close to the clinician and too, too close to his emotions. We wanna keep evaluating the client's desire for and tolerance of interpersonal relationship. So as we gather history and try to understand their past patterns, we wanna keep checking and monitoring how are they responding to our, their connection with us and what we're talking about. If their psychosis increases, it means we need to step back and move more gradually, more slowly. If we can talk about their feelings, grief, loss, and they keep like their anxiety kind of goes down, we can keep talking about it. So we wanna watch their anxiety and agitation levels and their psychotic symptom levels and use that as a sign of whether we're, we're getting too close and talking about too emotional stuff or whether we can keep going. There are times we need to pull back and see a client less frequently, more briefly, perhaps in a more public setting. Sometimes clients are more comfortable in a public setting. Um, many of us working with homeless people are starting to realize some clients are more comfortable out in the open and not within four walls. Um, okay. So, I wanna, before we really completely end, I wanna also be sure to talk about non-psychotherapeutic techniques. So I don't want you to get the impression that that's the only thing we should do. I know I've been saying that, but 
One adjunct that I have found really, really helpful is the Wellness Recovery and Action Plan by Mary Ellen Copeland. Um, she has a method and, and you can find it in her book as well as probably on the internet. Um, although buying her book would be appropriate. Um, but it tells us how to make a notebook with the client to refer to regularly. And this, I think clients are not, at the beginning of treatment and the kind of treatment I'm describing, they're not ready to do this. But after you've been working with someone for a while, going back to one of you that asked, when would you challenge a client's delusions? I think when a client starts to realize that they have psychotic features that interfere with their life, is a time we might wanna go for a wrap plan. We make a list, well, together with the client, we make a list of actions the person needs to do every day to keep themselves feeling well. We make a list of things a person needs to do at other frequencies, not just daily. We help them make a list of triggers, which could be external events, thoughts, feelings, memories, et cetera, that can cause the symptoms to worsen. We make a list with them of actions they can take when those triggers occur. We help them identify early warning signs that they may need more help, that they might be getting close to relapse, what they should do if they're seeing these warning signs, a list of serious symptoms, and then action plans for when, what to do if these serious symptoms occur. And then things other people they want other people to do if they do go into crisis. So that's a complete wrap plan. We write it down with them, put it in a notebook and help them keep the notebook somewhere they can pull it off the shelf and look at it. So it's very concrete, but it has these lists of these things that can help them keep up doing the things that help them do well. And then what to do when things start to go a little um, down. So I think this is, can be super, super helpful. Um, and I wanna be sure to mention some of the other evidence-based interventions for people with schizophrenia. So these are some of them. I've just got one slide on each so to be sure to mention them. So assertive community treatment is really, FS, the FSP program is really quite modeled on ACT assertive community treatment. So it's a, it's a wraparound, whatever it takes, multidisciplinary intervention, comprehensive services, meds, therapy, employment, housing, case management, et cetera, et cetera, all the different things we do. So that has got an evidence base for helping people with schizophrenia. Um, CBT, social skills training. So at a certain point in treatment, clients with psychotic disorders will accept help learning social skills or practicing social skills, role-playing social skills, helping clients develop ways of expressing their feelings assertively and clearly with other people and problem-solving skills. So this has been found to be helpful for people with schizophrenia. Integrated illness management and recovery. I think there's a training going on through the UCLA partnership on this, maybe right now. 
uh, psychoeducation about illness and self-management treatment approaches, including both medical illnesses and mental illnesses, helping them learn how to treat and take care of diabetes, COPD, CH, congestive heart failure, heart disease, hypertension, hyperlipidemia, osteoarthritis, illnesses that people with serious mental illness often experience at higher, higher levels. Helping older people experience success is skills training on communication, making friends, leisure time, healthy living, living independently in the community. Um, FAST, the FAST program and the PEDAL is the FAST approach, uh, which I've got some slides on here. So FAST, so PEDAL is a Spanish language adaptation of the FAST program, uh, which teaches um, a variety of living skills. So it's often really important to try to help people learn medication management, social skills, communication skills, organization planning, transportation and financial management. Um, and this has an evidence base, yeah. And then just lastly, I wanna mention that Marshall Linehan's development of DBT for borderline personality disorder, DBT skills obviously have been adapted for a variety of diagnoses, but um, here's a book on DBT for psychosis, which I think you know, would be useful in, in various circumstances to add into our repertoire. Okay, well, thank you for your attention. Thank you for your questions and your comments.